hello again, everyone. This is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is episode 118, and today we're going to be talking about post op care, that care of the surgical patient. As always, before we dive into that, I do like to take a moment to give a listener shout out to those of you who take your time to send me your kind comments. So today's listener shout out goes out to Khaleesi. And Khaleesi writes, I love listening to this podcast. I feel very overwhelmed while in med surge and feel like I have no time to stop studying. Usually, recordings from lectures are long and messy, but this podcast is concise and clear. I'm able to exercise and review a few topics, keeping my mind and body healthy. Love your podcast. Hope you keep at it, Nurse Mo. Khaleesi, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to write that review and let me know how much it benefits you. I absolutely love when students listen to my podcast while they are doing something that is good for them themselves. So thank you so very much for that. So today we're talking about post-op care of of patients having surgery in the inpatient setting, okay? So first we'll talk about the recovery period and that um, post-anesthesia recovery period, and then we'll talk about the period after the patient has fully recovered from their anesthesia and they've gone to uh, the nursing unit for continued care. So right now, I work in a recovery unit, you guys, and it is amazing. So if you're interested in doing critical care nursing that's not as let me see, how do I phrase this? So ICU nursing, critical care nursing is you have to solve every problem the patient has and you do that for 12 hours and it's very, it's dynamic and exciting and I loved it and I did that for a long time. It also took a massive toll on my well-being and the health of my body. It's a very physically demanding job. I did that for about nine years um, and you guys probably know that if you've been listening to my podcast for any length of time. I switched over to PACU nursing when I was in graduate school because I needed that per diem schedule, which I love. Oh my gosh. And um, I just wanted to do something that wasn't quite as intense, but I could still get enough flavor of critical care that I wouldn't get bored or lose my skills. So PACU nursing is definitely great. It's fast paced. You've got patients coming in and out of surgery. They're highly unstable initially, and then it's kind of fun. Most of the time, you know, they improve pretty quickly and you get to watch their, you know, their hemodynamics stabilize, their body systems come back around. And, you know, the patient that was really uh, tenuous in the very beginning is now talking to you and eating jello. And it's just kind of fun and to see people progress. So um, I really enjoy it. So if that's something that you're at all interested in, I think you should definitely check it out if that's an option for your clinicals, or if you're a new nurse looking for a place to work. It's just a great, um, it's a great place to work. I love my schedule. The PACU I work in is only open um, Monday through Friday from like 6am to 11pm. 
So there's no, unless you're doing call, obviously there's call to cover the overnights and the weekends, but you know, not counting call, then you're not working weekends, you're not working holidays. It is awesome. There is call for holidays as well, but I'm just saying it is great. So check it out. Okay. So that recovery period directly after surgery, patients go to what's called the post anesthesia recovery unit or post anesthesia care unit, rather the PACU. Um, If the patient is an ICU patient, Sometimes they'll go straight back up to the ICU if they're intubated after surgery and the ICU is staffed for that critical recovery period. Um, Typically, the patient is supposed to be a one-to-one if they're critical and fresh out of surgery. And sometimes the ICU just can't uh, accommodate that level of staffing. So if the nurse can't have just the one patient, then that ICU patient will recover in the PACU as well. So you'll be getting patients that are are really, really critically ill before they went to surgery, patients that went to surgery and now they're um, unstable and they become critical, or you have patients that come in really sick at surgery, they start doing a lot better. And then you have the well surgeries, like the people that come in to get their knee replaced, their shoulder fixed, things like that, their appendix taken out. You know, obviously they were a little bit sick as they were having that acute appendicitis attack, but otherwise they're healthy. They're going to hopefully, you know, generally recover just fine. So for the sake of simplicity, let's assume that we're talking about inpatient post-op care. Uh, there, you know, there are outpatient surgery centers where people come in, get their surgery, and then go home the same day. But let's let's focus on inpatient for this conversation. So Let's say your patient comes out of the OR, you're the recovery nurse in the PACU, and he's, you know, in a lot of cases, that patient is still going to be completely out of it. There are times when patients wake up really quickly. I've had patients roll into the recovery room already talking. I've had patients roll into the recovery room starting to wake up. And then by the time I get my first assessment done, they're talking to me. And then I have other patients that come into the recovery room and they're zonked for, you know, an hour, an hour and a half. So it just depends on the anesthetic agents that were used, um, how much, how long the surgery was, the patient's metabolism for those drugs, etc. But let's just say typical situation is the patient comes out of surgery and is out of it. He's not intubated. Uh, Most of the time, the patients are not intubated. But a lot of times they will have an OPA, an oral pharyngeal airway. And that's if you've seen it, it just kind of looks like this plastic uh, curved tube in the mouth, and that just keeps the airway open because that anesthetic is going to cause decreased um, tone of those muscles around the airway and can cause that airway to collapse. So you have that OPA in place, and that keeps the airway open. It could also be inserted through the nose, and in that case, it's an NPA. So if you see any of those terms or hear those terms, you'll know what they are, and you'll know what that thing is for. So if your patient comes out of the PACU where I work, if they have an OPA in place, they are considered more critical because they have 
a device in place to protect their airway. So you need to keep a closer eye on these patients. So that patient will be a one-to-one initially. So we consider that like a complex patient. So this thing, this oral pharyngeal airway is going to stay in place until the patient um, is able to protect their own airway. Their airway stays open. And usually how that occurs is the patient will kind of come around a little bit and they notice they can feel that thing. I mean, it's probably pretty uncomfortable. I've never had one, but I imagine it's a bit uncomfortable and they kind of push it out with their tongue or they open their mouth. They may even reach up for it. So when I see my patient waking up, they're following commands. I'll have them open their mouth. um, And that's a good way to test if they're following commands. Open your mouth really wide. And or I'll say, do you want that thing out of your mouth? And they'll nod yes. And then I'll take it out. And um, I always keep it close by for good luck in case I need to insert it again. I, you know, I always think every, because it's kind of, you know, it's got slime all over it. Um, I'd love to just throw it away immediately. But I always think the one time I do that, I'm going to need it. And I'd rather not go run and grab another one. I'd rather have it right here. So I keep it for good luck. And so far, knock on wood, has not failed me. So um, the patient will wake up, maybe kind of gag on that a little bit, and obviously want it out of their mouth. So during this phase, when the patient first comes out of surgery, you're monitoring them for all sorts of things. So you obviously... Airway is like the number one thing in post-anesthesia care. Airway, airway, airway. Patients cannot protect their airways a lot of times, or maybe they initially are, and then for some reason there's, you know, the drugs being metabolized, you you give them some pain medicine, whatever, and now they can't protect their airway anymore. Airway is huge. A lot of times patients come out, and even if they have um, the OPA in place, usually though the OPA kind of takes care of this, but you'll see the anesthesiologist holding their chin up and that's a chin lift procedure and that manually opens the airway. So sometimes you'll have to, um, we'll call, you'll hear somebody say, are you holding an airway or can you come hold my airway? That's what they're talking about. You stand there at the side of the bed and you hold that the chin lift or the jaw thrust um, procedure to keep that airway open. So if you guys aren't sure what those are. There's probably 8 million videos online to see what they are. They're very simple to do, but they're also incredibly effective. And I've had times where I've had a patient come out who is just so... um, out of it so out from the anesthesia that we've had to hold airway for 20 minutes so usually where I work people are real good about helping you when you have an airway like that Um, they'll come hold your airway if they don't have you know an active patient at that time so that you can do all your assessments and all of your charting because you can't you can't do anything else. You are there and you're monitoring their airway the whole time. It's very critical time for that patient. So airway, I say, is the number one thing that you're watching for on these patients. Next, I would say you're looking at things like their uh, their vital signs, right? You're going to monitor their cardiac function, their heart rate, their heart rhythm. A lot of times after surgery, patients are in weird rhythms and then they will get Uh, better. They'll improve as the anesthetic wears off. So you need to monitor for those things. So a lot of times patients will be in a first degree AV block that they've never been in before, but it's just a reaction to the anesthesia. So you're going to run an EKG strip. You're not necessarily doing a whole 12 lead EKG, but we've got the little three lead EKG on the monitor and we'll run a strip and we'll identify the rhythm. Sometimes patients will have PVCs or PACs, um, irregular rhythms, and then things will start to... uh, 
level out. Maybe they come out of surgery very tachycardic because, you know, just that body stress response or they're in a lot of pain. So you're monitoring their heart rate, their heart rhythm. And with that, their blood pressure. So you want to make sure that they have a, a blood pressure that is, you know, you you hope that it's close to what they came in with. Um, but if it's not, you know, it could be high because of pain or stress or whatever. And it could be low. Maybe they lost blood in the procedure. Maybe they got a lot of propofol that they still need to sleep off. So you're watching their blood pressure as well. Along with the airway that you're maintaining or watching for, you're watching their respiratory rate. You're watching their respiratory effort, their uh, ability to take deep breaths. Maybe their breaths are really shallow. A lot of patients that have obstructive sleep apnea will have severe apnea in the recovery period. And you're telling them all the time uh, to take that deep breath because the apnea alarm is going off on the monitor. So those patients often need a lot of um wake up and breathe kind of stimulation. Um, you know, sometimes that's talking in a loud voice, hey, John, take a deep breath, or um, a hand on the shoulder and a, and a gentle shake, maybe a jiggle of the bed, just enough to rouse them so that they take that deep breath. A lot of times, well, now the policy where I work is that these patients with obstructive sleep apnea are placed on continuous entitled waveform, um, entitled CO2 capnography waveform monitoring. So I actually did an episode about capnography recently. So if you're interested in that, you can go check that out as well. So respiratory status, okay? And then pulse oximetry, that's going to tell me their oxygen saturation level. You want it to be above 92% as the general standard for a post-op patient. And then level of consciousness is another big one. You want to see how they're doing as they come around from the surgery. And, and a lot of times people will be completely out of it and then they, you know, they'll get to a point where they start to wake up and then they wake up really quickly. So it's a very dynamic process monitoring their level of consciousness. Um, you also want to monitor that surgical site. You want to get a look at that dressing right away so that you can see, okay, is there any um, bleeding? How's everything look? And then monitor that periodically to see if there's bleeding at that site, there could be, you know, some little, some little bits, that's fine. But you definitely want to watch for any abnormal bleeding, any signs of hemorrhage, for example. Um, skin signs, we always want to monitor the patient's skin signs. Are they, uh, is their skin warm? A lot of times they're very cold when they come out of surgery, we'll take their temperature and they have to meet a certain temperature threshold before they can leave. Joint surgeries, they keep that room freezing um, for, you know, antimicrobial reasons. And it's so cold back there. And so the patients come out and they're really cold. So we put the warmers on them and all of that. So we monitor um, their temperature and then their skin. Ideally, it's warm. Ideally, it's dry. Ideally, the color is appropriate for their race. You know, they're not mottled or dusky or flushed or anything like that. Um, sometimes those, those signs, like say the patient's mottled, well, that's going to be a perfusion problem. Maybe they have a decreased cardiac output. Maybe there's something's going on with their heart. Or if they're dusky or gray, are they oxygenating? Are they pale? Are they anemic? Like what? is going on. You're monitoring that with their skin signs. And then um, I've had a patient recently who came out of surgery just so diaphoretic, sweaty, like he just could not stop sweating. And the anesthesiologist told me it was because of the long tourniquet time on his, 
I believe his knee, I think he was having like a knee, I don't remember. He was having a joint worked on and they apply a tourniquet and that stops the blood flow um, so that the surgeon can have, you know, kind of a bloodless-ish area to work. And there's some kind of autonomic nervous system response when that tourniquet is released, especially when it's been on for a long time. And he just had this bizarre sweating reaction that lasted for a good hour. So anyway, little tidbit, something I did not know. Um, and then level of activity, are they able to move their arms? Are they able to move their legs? Things like that. So before the patient can be discharged from the recovery room, from the PACU, they need to score at least a nine on what's called the Aldretti scale. There's two actual Aldretti scales. There's a really long one, and then there's this other one. So we use this shorter one uh, where I work. And this is a way to determine that patient's readiness for stepping down to a less intensive level of care. So the Aldretti score... Um, Maybe it's probably maybe facility dependent. It could be an eight in some facilities. We like to have a score of nine. A perfect score is a score of 10. So um, it's broken up into different categories. So activity is the first one. And for activity, the patient gets two points if they can move their arms and their legs. Okay, perfect. That shows that they're pretty awake. They get one point if they can move two extremities. So maybe they can just move their arms, but they're not awake enough to move their legs. And then zero points if they're not moving anything, okay? A lot of times patients will come out of surgery and they're scoring a zero on that part of the Aldretti scale. Next, we look at their respirations. Two points for if the patient can cough and and breathe. Uh, one point if they have shallow breathing, limited breathing, dyspnea, okay? And then zero points if they're having apnea. So if the patient's not having any breaths on their own, um, I would hope that they would be being ventilated with the BVM by the anesthesiologist when they come in or on a ventilator, okay? So a lot of times patients will come out with a score of one, um, that shallow breath, maybe periodic apnea, but not um, not consistent, or maybe they've got like that manual airway hold. And then two points, of course, if they're, you know, they don't have an OPA in place, and they're taking nice, good deep breaths. The next section of the Aldretti score scale is circulation. So the patient's going to get two points if their blood pressure is within like 20% or so of their pre-op uh, blood pressure. A lot of times when you go back and look at the blood pressure directly before surgery, it might be higher than their normal because they're probably really nervous. So I like to go back and look at their blood pressure trend if I can, if I have that data. Sometimes I don't because they just came in that day to get surgery and the only blood pressure we have is the one from pre-op when it was 160 over 90. So in those cases... I'll try to look back at old notes. Maybe they were here for another visit. Or once the patient is awake, I'll say, hey, what's your blood pressure normally run? And they'll say, oh, it's normally 110. And I'll say, okay, so I think you were, re were you really nervous before you went in for surgery? Oh my gosh, yes, I was terrified. I'm so glad that's over. So then you kind of know what their blood pressure uh, tends to be. But um strictly protocol-based blood pressure within 20% of their pre-op level that would give them two points and then one point if it's like 20 to 
of that pre-op level, and then no points if it's way off base, if it's more than a 50% deviation, and that's up or down, okay? If it's too high or too low based off their pre-op level. And then consciousness would be that next segment to look at. Two points if the patient's fully awake, okay? They don't require any stimulation to stay awake. That's your patient that's initiating sentences, initiating talking to you. They don't wait to be um, roused in order to respond. Their eyes are open. They're sipping water. They're eating juice, whatever. One point for the patient being arousable to your voice. So you just saying, Bob, and they open their eyes. Yeah, they're arousable to voice, but they're not waking up on their own. And then zero points if they're not responsive. And then the last bit is that O2 saturation level. We want the patients to have an O2 saturation of at least 92% on room air. That's ideal. So that would score them two points. One point if they need supplemental oxygen to maintain that 92% or better. And then zero points if they are getting supplemental oxygen and their levels do not come above 90%. So that's the Aldretti scale and how that works. So you you add all of those up and when your patient gets to eight or nine, then they're ready to go. And of course, that will depend on your hospital's uh, policies and procedures. So let's see. Okay, so let's look at some of the things that could go wrong in this period. So one of the complications that can occur, it's rare, but it can occur and you'll be watching for in that recovery period is something called malignant hyperthermia. So this is a very severe emergency and it's essentially a genetically inherited condition that occurs in susceptible patients when they're exposed to certain anesthetic agents. Um, it can even be caused by stress and of course surgery is definitely very stressful. It's not so common these days because anesthesiologists do screen people for this ahead of time and ask about this genetically inherited condition. But a lot of times if a patient doesn't know or no one's ever had surgery or they don't know their medical history for whatever reason, maybe their family medical history, then it can still happen. So you're definitely always going to watch out for it. Um, if it does occur, it often occurs during the induction of anesthesia when that anesthetic is first used. Um, but it can occur up to three days later, which is a really scary thought. Um, and it can occur in the recovery room as well. So the short version of the pathophysiology of this condition is that there is a big influx of calcium ions into the myoplasm. And that occurs when the patient is exposed, again, to those certain anesthetic agents, um, including inhalation anesthetics, uh, local anesthetics, and muscle relaxers. And if you remember your muscle contraction physiology, then it makes sense that this influx of calcium is going to cause muscle contraction. Only in the case of malignant hyperthermia, it's very prolonged muscle contraction and very intense. So this leads to a generation of heat and acid. So the patient becomes hyperthermic and acidotic. So I'm talking like high temperatures, you guys. So what are you going to see with a patient who's under, uh, who's going through malignant hyperthermia? And I just hope that you never see this. So hyperthermia will occur, but that typically doesn't occur early. That's typically a later sign. You will see a respiratory and a metabolic acidosis occur. The patient will have a tachycardia. That heart rate will go up. Their respiratory rate will go up, and their oxygen saturation level likely will go down. Their blood pressure will become unstable. They could have ventricular 
arrhythmias, and the skin could get mottled because there's just systemic-wide vasoconstriction going on, so the tissues aren't getting perfusion, and that muscle rigidity. Okay, you guys? That happens in most patients. So when I'm watching for, when I have a patient whose muscles are really rigid, and that can happen sometimes due to pain um, and guarding, the patient's guarding against pain and movement, I get really nervous, and I start watching for all these other signs to occur. So of course, you always want to know what your plan is when you have a plan in place and you know the plan. It really helps you feel more confident and clinical and less nervous when you're faced with patients who could deteriorate. So early recognition is the very best thing that you can do for malignant hyperthermia and that swift intervention is absolutely crucial. So Operating rooms have malignant hyperthermia carts. The recovery room has a malignant hyperthermia cart so that it's there when you need it, okay? So that cart will be there and it has instructions on it about everything that you're supposed to do. And one of the things that is on that cart on the that little sign, that little placard there is to call an advice line and you get a malignant hyperthermia um, expert, a physician on the phone, and that physician talks to the physician that responds to the malignant hyperthermia code or whatever it's called to help manage the care of that patient. So that hyperthermia cart is ready to go with all the necessary equipment. It's got a little refrigerator in it and there's IV fluids in there that are cold so that you can start infusing cold IV fluids to help get the body temperature down. And then there's a medication in there called Dantrolene. And dantrolene is the uh, treatment for malignant hyperthermia. And if you're really lucky, a pharmacist comes down and helps get that prepped as well. Just because it's a medication you haven't used all the time, um, you might not be very familiar with it. It's always nice when pharmacy responds to things like this to really help that safe medication administration. So that's something that is very scary, but it's very rare, but it could happen and I wanted you to be aware of it. Okay, and then respiratory wise, there's all kinds of things that can go wrong with your patient. Respiratory events are the most common events in that recovery period. So um, edema. That's one. So the patient could have laryngeal edema, and that can occur because the patient was intubated and now there's irritation and inflammation, and even allergic reactions to medications can cause that laryngeal edema. So this is the patient that you might hear strider on, may have a hoarse voice that's um, more hoarse than what you would expect. Um, they may have a, a croup sounding cough. I've heard this before, thankfully not on one of my patients, but you may have a croup sounding cough. You may see retractions when they're breathing uh, on upon inspiration. And typically the treatment for this, and it may depend again on your hospital hospital's protocols and procedures, uh, the treatment is to use cool humidified oxygen and um, racemic epinephrine can be administered. So you want to sit the patient up as well as you can and do your very best to just keep them nice and calm because the more they panic, the worse that their breathing is going to get. So keeping them nice and calm while you get all of those things ready will help. And if it's very severe, the patient may need to be intubated. So hopefully that doesn't happen. Hopefully the treatments of the humidified 
cool oxygen help, and then racemic epinephrine as needed. Okay, so laryngospasm is kind of closely related to that. And so when the larynx is irritated, it can go into a spasm. And that can lead to either a partial or a complete airway obstruction. So it occurs after the patient is extubated and tends to be more common in patients who have asthma, patients who smoke, patients who have COPD. The treatment for this includes uh, positive pressure mask ventilation, possibly racemic epi could help. Um, I've seen atropine, I've seen steroids, and intubation if it becomes really severe. So signs that your patient is having a laryngospasm are, you know, low oxygen levels, maybe they're hypoventilating, maybe they have dyspnea, maybe they have an absence of breath sounds even. So a lot of different things that can clue you into that laryngospasm. Aspiration is definitely something that can occur to anyone with a decreased level of consciousness or a swollen airway or or what I call a floppy airway, an airway where the muscles are not... Um, strong and awake yet. So after anesthesia, that airway can be floppy. So this could, um, the patient could aspirate stomach contents, which is why we don't let them eat before surgery, right? Because if they vomit and they aspirate stomach contents into their lungs, that sets them up for what can be some pretty significant lung damage. You think about the pH of gastric contents, and then you think about the tender, delicate lung tissue, and those two things don't play well together at all. So if you suspect that your patient is aspirating or they're super high risk for aspirating, you want to keep them on their side so that if uh, any vomitus does come up, it doesn't go back down. It just can drain right out onto, onto the nice clean linens, okay? Much rather it be there. And then you can suction the oropharynx as well with that yank hour. Um, patients who aspirate may need some kind of ventilation support like positive pressure ventilation or even intubation if that aspiration event was severe, causing enough uh, damage to the lungs that they require uh, mechanical ventilation. I've seen aspiration occur um, and the deterioration was so sudden and so severe, the patient started breathing like agonal breathing right away and the SATs dropped very, very, very far down. So thankfully not my patient, but um, just seeing those things happen can be really, really scary. And then hypoxia and hypoventilation, also very common, very common um, complications and things that can happen in that recovery period. So pain medications, the anesthetic agents can cause, um, and benzodiazepines as well, can cause hypoventilation and hypoxia. So you want to keep a really close eye on your patients. Give them supplemental oxygen, especially when they're breathing very shallow and very slow. You want to give them a little extra oxygen. Hold off on the pain meds um, if you notice that the pain medication does cause this respiratory depression and just keep waking them up. I always feel so bad because I want my patients to be able to rest after surgery, but sometimes in that first hour, I'm constantly waking them up because they need to take those nice deep breaths. And then some patients may need a BiPAP and some patients may even, again, need to be intubated if it's very severe. And then cardiac-wise you're going to be monitoring for all sorts of things. So cardiac function, 
can definitely be depressed and affected by anesthetic agents. So, you know, I mentioned a few earlier, so dysrhythmias can definitely occur. Sinus tachycardia, very common. Sinus bradycardia, I would say, I see more often, sometimes rates as low as in the 40s, and that can be really scary. So that's why you want to watch the patient's blood pressure, make sure that they're able to maintain a blood pressure with a heart rate that is that low. Um, Supraventricular tachycardia, SVT can occur, AFib, a flutter. Um, even VTAC. So you want to keep an eye on all of that. The treatments, of course, depend on what is actually going on with that individual rhythm and why it has occurred. A lot of times tachycardia is simply due to pain. So if you give some pain medicine and the tachycardia improves, then voila, you fixed the tachycardia. Look at you go. Um, Sometimes it's because of hypoxia. So treat the hypoxia and you may fix the cardiac issue. A slow heart rate could be due to uh, maybe the patient got a lot of pain medicine. Um, Maybe they had a reaction to some anesthesia and it's going to take a really long time for that to wear off. It's really nice to know ahead of time if your patient had an underlying cardiac condition, just to give you that heightened sense of what my... uh, my professor in nursing school called your index of suspicion, you know, a much higher index of suspicion for something that could go wrong. And the patient's going to be on, again, that basic cardiac monitor after surgery. When in doubt, if they go into any sustained arrhythmia, then that's when you would get that 12 lead EKG so that you can really evaluate what is happening with your patient. Hypotension is another common complication after surgery. So especially if there's a dysrhythmia going on, the blood pressure can be low. So you want to definitely, anytime the heart rhythm changes or is abnormal, check a blood pressure. Um, If the patient lost volume in surgery, their blood pressure could be low. What was their blood loss? You should always be hearing in report from the anesthesiologist or the nurse who brings you the patient after surgery, what their blood loss uh, amount was in the procedure. Um, General anesthesia can definitely cause low blood pressure. So there are a lot of different reasons why a patient could be hypotensive, and the treatment is usually going to be related to whatever caused it. The facility where I work, typically the first line of treatment for hypotension is to give a little bit of a fluid bolus. Obviously, that's not going to factor in for all patients. Renal patients, patients with CHF may not get a fluid bolus as a first line treatment for their blood pressure, but we'll give a little fluid bolus and most of the time that helps. Sometimes patients need a vasoactive medication like phenylephrine and we'll give that. Sometimes if the hypotension is due to a bradycardia. I've had patients where their heart rate was just so slow that it wasn't able to sustain a blood pressure. We give a medication called glycopyrrolate and that increases the heart rate and voila, increases the blood pressure too because cardiac output was improved. So a lot of times your treatment for the hypotension will be addressing what's causing it in the first place. Hypertension can also occur. Um, Lots of time it's due to pain. It could be from fluid overload. Maybe the patient's gotten too much fluid. Maybe they're cold and shivering and that can cause some hypertension. 
Um, a lot of times the patient may just have a, an, a heightened parasympathetic response uh, because of the surgery, because of the a- uh, anesthetic agents used. So try to figure out why your patient might be hypertensive. And usually your patient will come out of surgery with PRN orders for, you know, things like hydralazine and whatnot to help their high blood pressure stabilize. Okay, so let's talk about bleeding for just a moment. It's always definitely a risk and concern after surgery, um, in some types of surgeries more than others. So when are you going to be extra worried about bleeding as a potential problem in your post-surgical patient? So I would say any patient with a coagulopathy, so any patient who has a clotting factor deficiency or liver disease or low platelets or a high INR or PTT or cancer, anything that would cause them to be extra prone to bleeding, that patient's going to be at high risk for bleeding after surgery. So you'll be keeping a very close eye on their surgical site, but sometimes the bleeding can be internal. And that's when you need to monitor for things like um, hypotension and pain. Blood pooling in the uh, peritoneal space pushes on, you know, nerves, nerves, and it's painful. So if the patient's complaining of pain that you're not expecting, it could be because there's internal bleeding going on. Anyone with diabetes, um, that leads to poor skin integrity. So the anastomosis that the surgeon creates where they're sewing different parts of the body back together might not hold as well. There could be bleeding. There could be bleeding at the Um, incision site itself. So your patients with diabetes, especially uncontrolled diabetes, are probably going to have poor skin integrity and be at risk for bleeding. Anyone who takes chronic steroids, such as prednisone, again, that causes that poor skin integrity. The patient could be prone to bleeding. Obese patients, uh, skin with obese patients often doesn't have excellent circulation, so it's going to be a bit more fragile. And any vascular surgery, you're definitely watching for bleeding if the surgeon's been in there messing around with blood vessels, okay? Um, That goes without saying, but I had to say it. Okay, so signs of post-op bleeding, you guys, are drops in blood pressure, elevations in heart rate, like the heart rate increasing, you guys know this, to make up for the um, lower volume in the system. That blood pressure is going to drop and the heart rate's going to increase as a way to compensate. An increase in respiratory rate um, as the body tries to compensate for the loss of red blood cells, which are carrying the oxygen around, and you may see a corresponding drop in O2 saturation with that as well. Sometimes you can, with that internal bleeding, you can see a hematoma developing. You can feel a hematoma developing. So keep an eye on that. If it's an abdominal surgery, then that abdomen could be filling up with blood. And it's probably going to take quite a bit of blood before you would actually see it. But you could get a distended belly. You could get a firm belly. It's going to hurt. The patient is going to be complaining of pain. The treatment for post-op bleeding is usually the patient's got to go back to surgery. They got to go fix that. So in the case Cases where the patient has a coagulopathy, the surgeon may want some kind of treatment for that um, in the recovery room before they come back, or they may just take care of that in the OR itself. Um, That could be giving patients uh, platelets, giving vitamin K, giving plasma, giving red blood cells themselves. It can be very, very busy when you have a patient who is actively bleeding. 
And then three more things that you'll be keeping on top of with your post-surgical patients in that recovery room environment are pain, hypothermia, and nausea and vomiting, some very common things that occur after surgery. So in that period, pain medications typically ordered every five minutes, sometimes 10 minutes, sometimes 15 minutes. It kind of depends on the anesthesiologist. So you'll be, um, in some cases, you're just constantly giving pain meds. You're making a lot of trips to the Pixis room. So with anesthesia and pain meds, um, often comes some nausea with that. Most of the time, the anesthesiologist is really good at screening patients for being high risk for post-operative nausea and vomiting. And a lot of patients will get Zofran, they'll get... Um, I, I believe it's Decadron. I forget which one it is. Reglan, Zofran, Decadron, things like that um, before they wake them up to help prevent them from having nausea and vomiting. But they could still have that when they wake up. So just be aware that it could still happen. Um, so the last thing you really want is your patient throwing up. It puts them at risk for aspiration. If they've had especially any abdominal or chest surgery, super painful for the patient. So anytime the patient says they're nauseous, just take their word for it. Just get in there and give them the PRA medications that you have ordered for the nausea, but pay careful attention to the frequency because some of them are like every six hours. So let's say you can't, you've given one Zofran dose and you can't give another one for six hours. There's usually going to be Reglan ordered as your second dose and then something like Finergan um, for your third dose, something like that. So you'll be going through kind of a stepwise process to based on what your anesthesiologist orders to treat that nausea. I have tried this and it does tend to work. I don't know where I learned this little trick, but you take an alcohol swab and um, open the package and have the patient just kind of breathe the smell of the alcohol swab. And it's supposed to like trick the brain, trick that nausea center of the brain into not feeling nauseous anymore. I've had patients say that it helps. And then if your hospital uses essential oils, I think it's peppermint that's supposed to help. We use essential oils at my hospital. I think it's peppermint that's supposed to help with the nausea, but don't quote me on that. I am by no means an essential oils expert. A cool cloth to the head can help. Um, a Ice chips sometimes can help. A cool fan, cool air can help extra oxygen just to make them feel like they're getting enough air can sometimes help decreasing stimulation, turning down the light. So there's some other things that you can do for nausea. And then for hypothermia, understanding that ORs, like I said, are very cold places, especially if the surgery is really long, especially if there's any joints involved, then those surgical rooms tend to be a lot colder. We have a surgeon who does surgeries that are 10 hours long, and you better believe it, those patients come out really cold. So you're going to be checking a temp as one of the very first things you do when your patients arrive. And it can be, take a while to get them warmed up. So we have these blankets that are... I don't know what they're called. They're just a warming blanket. They're like these paper slash plastic blankets and it kind of looks like an air mattress and you plug it up to this device we have in each bay of the recovery room and it blows warm air into it and then you put another blanket over it and it just kind of holds all that warm air in and it's super cozy and patients love it. So that's what we use. It's called... Um, we call it the bear hugger. If you hear someone say the bear hugger, that's what they're talking about. Bear hugger is like, I think that's a brand name for the warming device. And then you use this little blanket with it. So 
warming blankets are used. You can also grab blankets from the, the blanket warmer and just put those on. Depending on how cold the patient is, you'll kind of get a feel for how aggressive you need to be. If they're below 36 degrees, then that's an indication that for when my policy in my hospital is to put the actually warming blanket on with that forced air. A lot of times patients temperature will be fine, but they'll feel cold and we bring them those warm blankets for their comfort. And then the reason why you care about post-op hypothermia is not just because it's uncomfortable for the patients, but it definitely is, but it can cause uh, clotting disorders. It can cause the blood not to clot the way that it should. It can also cause decreased level of consciousness. So your patient may take longer to wake up from surgery because they're hypothermic. It can cause electrolyte imbalances. It can cause cardiac arrhythmias and shiver greatly, greatly increases the body's oxygen demand. So we want to prevent shivering, get our patients nice and warm. Okay, so let's say the patient is now awake. He's moving his arms and legs. He's on room air. His blood pressure is fine. He's, uh, what else? He's He doesn't have any apnea. We're going to go to the floor, okay? And now you're going to be the nurse on the floor taking care of a post-surgical patient. So in general, in that post-surgical period, the patient's still at risk for some of the things that we talked about from the recovery room, right? That malignant hyperthermia can still occur. That respiratory depression from their pain medication could still occur. They could still have hypotension. They could still bleed. So a lot of those things you're still going to watch for. You're not going to be scoring them on that Aldredi scale, and you're probably not going to be getting pain meds every five minutes. But other than that, you're still watching out for a lot of those same complications. So your patient, when they come to the floor, should at the very least be arousable and on room air or completely awake with a little bit of oxygen. And if you look at the Aldredi scoring, you can probably figure out that both of those scenarios get them a score of nine. And nine is good enough to go to the floor as long as the anesthesiologist and the surgeon are okay with supplemental oxygen on the floor. And most of the times they are, but it really might depend on your um, hospital's procedures and policies. So one of the things that you'll definitely be watching for with your patient after surgery when they're on the floor is their pain. They're definitely going to have pain. Um, patients who are in pain tend to not move. They tend to not want to get out of bed. They tend to not want to cough. They tend to not want to take deep breaths. And all of those things set them up for pneumonia. And that immobility on top of it sets them up for not only the pneumonia, but uh, pressure ulcers as well. So you want the patient's pain to be controlled, but you have to be very careful that you don't overly sedate your patient. So um, giving the patient their pain medication and teaching them that they need to cough, teaching them that they need to take those deep breaths, teaching them that they need to get up and move, get up and sit in the chair, do all of those things. And yes, it is going to hurt. If they have an expectation that they will have no pain, that's absolutely unrealistic. You need to explain, you will have some pain, but let's get it down to a level where you can take a deep breath. What would that level be for you? And see if you can get them to tell you what that would be. Maybe that's a three on the zero to 10 scale or a four on the zero to 10 scale. Try to find out where they can function and then that is your goal. Your goal is never going to be to get their pain to zero unless you want them to be intubated in the ICU and completely snowed on narcotics, okay? You're also going to be controlling nausea and vomiting as it can occur because it can still occur for a while after surgery. 
Again, that's that aspiration risk. Vomiting can tear delicate suture lines. Um, it can put that patient at risk for bleeding after surgery. And again, it's going to hurt, especially if they had an abdominal or a chest wall surgery. Also, of course, monitoring for your vital signs, monitoring for uh, signs of infection, monitoring for fluid overload. You're going to be listening to their lungs. You're going to be listening to their bowel sounds. They will eventually wake up after surgery. All those types of things that you'll be monitoring your patient for. You also want to prevent skin breakdown. Like I said, sometimes the pain, the patients don't want to move and then they just lay in the one position. Well, they can't do that. They're going to get a pressure ulcer. And um, sometimes with devices, maybe they've got a knee brace on because they had a knee surgery and that knee brace is kind of rubbing in a weird way. They could get skin breakdown from medical devices. So definitely watching for skin breakdown with your patient. And then, like I mentioned before, um, infection. You want to keep an eye on that dressing. You want that dressing to stay nice and clean. You want to make sure that you're always washing your hands really well before you get anywhere near that dressing. Um, instruct the patient to not be touching it, please. And um, encourage the patient to, well, before I move on, let's just mention the dressing. Most of the time, the surgeon will want to take that first dressing off and look at the wound. So if the wound, if the dressing becomes super saturated, a lot of times the first post-op day orders will be to just reinforce the dressing. So just put another clean dressing over it because the surgeon wants to be the one to come do that first takedown. So just be aware of what your hospital kind of your surgeon's habits and preferences are. If the dressing is super saturated, that might be that you need to call the surgeon and say, hey, I think there's some bleeding going on. Do you want me to change the dressing? Do you want to come look at it, etc." So just be aware that for dressing changes that are ordered, they typically occur routinely after the surgeon has already come and done that first um, assessment of the surgical site, okay? And then you want to encourage the patient, again, coughing, taking those nice deep breaths because that's going to help prevent pneumonia. Sometimes you got to control their pain before they'll do that coughing and deep breathing, so you got to have those conversations with your patient. You're going to be scrubbing the heck out of all of your IV hubs before you attach anything to them to prevent um uh, you know, IV-associated line infections in your patients. If the patient has a Foley catheter, typically the standard for most patients is that it's removed the very next day after surgery. And typically what a lot of uh, nursing units will do is they'll take that Foley catheter out like right around midnight on that next day, like in the middle of the night. And then that gives the patient, you know, six-ish hours to void. And then if they haven't voided in six-ish hours, then by the time the surgeon comes in to do those early morning rounds, you can say, oh, hey, Dr. Dr. Jill, Bob hasn't voided yet. His Foley's been out for six hours. And you can address those issues with the surgeon then. Um, most people void just fine, but you want to give them some time for the bladder to fill and for them to void. Okay. And you want to be able to communicate that to the surgeon before they go in and are in surgery all day, because sometimes it can be hard to reach a surgeon when they're actually in there um, and not taking a lot of phone calls. Okay, let's see. You're going to monitor their temperature. You'll monitor their white blood cell counts. The white blood cell counts might take, um, you know, a little bit to... to um, 
rise, you might see um, localized signs of infection before you would see a white blood cell count go up. So if you're looking at that dressing, let's say the surgeon's taken it off and you're monitoring the wound, um, you're looking for, you know, redness, warmth, purulent drainage, things like that that make it look like it's infected. And then a patient could get a systemic infection with that high white blood cell count. And that typically occurs a little bit later. And hopefully that does not happen to your patients. You want to prevent and monitor for deep vein thrombosis. Most patients will get those sequential compression devices on their legs when they're in bed, and they'd be encouraged to walk, you know, a certain amount of uh, distance or time each day. And then... Um, well, again, a little bit about DVTs. I think I've done a podcast episode about this, but I'll just review real quick. So the patients who's at risk for a deep vein thrombosis are patients with prolonged immobility. So let's say the patient had surgery. They just don't feel like getting up. Maybe they had a 10-hour back surgery, and now they're in so much pain, and they there's no way in heck they're getting up. And patients with back surgery do get out of bed with their back braces on, but it's still quite an endeavor and incredibly painful. So you have to have those conversations, right? You have to deal with their pain. They have to know what the expectations are. A lot of times they'll be working with PT. But that patient with that prolonged immobility, high risk for a DVT. Um, patients with malignancy are high risk for DVT. Something about cancer makes people clot more um, than uh, normal. Um, patients with large... Um, belly surgeries. I'm not talking about the size of their bellies. I'm talking about the size of the surgery, like a big, prolonged, intense abdominal surgery. Patients with pelvic surgery or any surgery of the lower extremities can put them at risk for DVT. Patients who are obese or have a history of DVT, anyone that comes in and who's had a DVT in the past, you're going to be highly suspicious that they could have another one. Patients with heart failure, any history of myocardial infarction, any fractures of the leg, pelvis, the hip, anything like that. Anyone with varicose veins, just veins that aren't operating optimally can have a DVT more likely. And patients on hormonal therapy, such as birth control pills, estrogen therapy, things like that. Okay, looking at our wound, we want to monitor for good wound healing. And you guys, if you're taking notes, you can use all this stuff in a care plan on a post-surgical patient, okay? So if you haven't been taking notes, go back and take notes. I should have mentioned that earlier. But monitoring for poor wound healing. So in a perfect, beautiful world, your patient's wound is well approximated. That's the term that we use to say that the edges are close together. It's well approximated. And there's no redness. There's no warmth. There's no purulent drainage, like I mentioned a moment ago. Most wounds, like I said, going to be covered for about 24 hours after surgery, maybe a little bit less. And then that surgeon's going to come most of the time and do that. Um, I would say do that first dressing change. Most likely they're just going to take it down and then you're going to put the new dressing on on top of that. So sometimes the wound will be left open to air. Sometimes wounds will just have something called dermabond on them, which is like a skin glue. So you can, you can see those right away because there's no... Um, you know, occlusive or not occlusive. There's no visually occlusive dressing over the site. Um, if your patient is obese, if your patient is diabetic, if your patient's on corticosteroids, anything that can cause the patient's skin integrity to be less than stellar, you're really going to have to watch that wound healing very closely because there is a thing called wound dehiscence, and it's awful. It's when the wound basically breaks open and 
if it's on the belly, and I think it's more common to happen on the belly just because of um, intrathoracic pressure. There's a lot of changes in intrathoracic pressure with position, with coughing, with taking deep breaths. So if a wound's going to dehiss, it's probably going to be on the belly. And then things come out that shouldn't come out. And it's very upsetting. So I hope that you don't ever have a wound dehiss. Um, it's going to suddenly pop open. Um, you probably see some organs that you didn't expect to see. And the treatment or what you typically do with that is you cover that with sterile gauze or some kind of sterile drape that is soaked in sterile normal saline. And you need to call the surgeon immediately. That patient's definitely going to go back to surgery to get stitched up again. Uh, one thing that you can help do to help your patient prevent an abdominal dehiscence is teach them to splint their belly when they cough or when they change position and move. You can have um, a little pillow there and they hug that in towards their belly when they cough or when they're getting up out of bed, things like that. And it actually does help with the pain as well because just that gentle pressure against that coughing really uh, is more comfortable for the patient. Okay, you'll also monitor bowel sounds. I think I mentioned that a little bit earlier. Um, the belly is going to be quiet, especially if they had abdominal surgery. It's going to be quiet for a little bit. That's normal. That's a test question, you guys. Your patient has had abdominal surgery, and it is now two hours after surgery, and they have no bowel sounds. Are you going to freak out? Well, the answer is the test question would be written way more convoluted than that, but that would be the gist of it. And the answer is no. It's expected that the bowel sounds will be quiet initially and then slowly come around, okay? So um, sometimes the MD won't order a diet until bowel sounds are present, but I found it tends to be more of the trend these days that will start them on like little sips of things and that little sipping of things can help the belly wake up. Now, if they had a belly surgery, especially a big belly surgery, the surgeon may be a little bit or even sometimes a lot more cautious about taking in PO um, liquids or foods. So, you know, go on a case-by-case -case basis and just kind of know that the general rule of thumb is regular surgeries, the patient's sipping things right away. Belly surgeries, the surgeon may wait until bowel sounds are present, okay? So that is your I was going to say short and sweet, but that was almost an hour. Your general overview of taking care of patients in that post-op period, whether it is first thing out of the recovery room or in the inpatient unit like a med surge floor or an ortho floor. So next week, you guys, we'll be talking about all the factors that come into play to control a patient's blood pressure. So if you're interested in hemodynamics, and we're not going to get too far down the weeds. I want this to be something that you can apply in your first semester and use that information. So if that interests you, and I guarantee you this is one of the things that as a nurse you'll be following pretty closely with most of your patients. And when you have an understanding of all the things that come into play with blood pressure, you develop more of an understanding of your patient's clinical picture. So that's what we'll be talking about next week. I will see you back here. You guys have a fantastic week. Take care. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.